0: Well, I invite you and I encourage you to turn to Proverbs chapter 6 in your Bibles, Proverbs chapter 6, and also we have an outline, those of you that are here live in the auditorium, those who are available at our main doors uh, as you come in, if you want to go and fetch one of those if you didn't get one on the way in so that you can follow along, and those of you who are watching by live stream, we have a button for that outline next to your media player. We're continuing our series in the book of Proverbs that's titled Living Wisely in a Foolish World. The first nine chapters of Proverbs 31 chapters are an introduction that lays a foundation for the remainder of the book. The remainder of the book is what contains those short memorable sayings that we normally think of when we hear this book mentioned. The introduction contains ten lectures on wisdom From a Father to a Son, and today we're going to see the last two of those lectures, lectures 9 and 10. Two weeks ago in chapter 5 was lesson 8, and you may remember that the topic was a warning not to misuse God's good gift of sex. The first part of chapter 6 was a follow-up to that, but it focused on other ways that one can get himself into financial trouble. You may remember that one possible result of sexual sin, back from chapter 5, was becoming indebted, even enslaved, to the adulterous woman's husband. And so chapter 6 continued the theme of financial wisdom and foolishness. But now, with these last two lessons, we're back to the theme of sexual immorality for reasons that we'll see in a bit, because these two lessons... 9 and 10 are related. We're going to cover them together. So that means 43 verses. (laughs) From the middle of chapter 6 all the way through chapter 7. We have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we thank you that we're here. And again, we acknowledge that we're here only because of you, because of your grace at work in our lives. Lord, we thank you for these friends, these brothers and sisters who have come, who desire to hear from you, and those who are watching by live stream, Lord, that they will be blessed from your word as well. And so help us to indeed have attentive minds and open hearts to receive what you have for us, to leave this place better equipped to serve you than we came. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. I say in the outline, first of all, that wisdom protects from sexual immorality. Now, you don't have a blank to fill in there but you will as we, as we move forward. But verse 20 of chapter 6 says this, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Your father's command and your mother's teaching on what? Well, these two lessons in chapter 6 and 7 are focused on what's introduced in verse 24. Verse 24, Keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Now let's talk for a bit about why the Bible is dealing with this issue of sex so frequently back in chapter 2 the father warned his son to beware of certain kinds of women and men and then the entirety of chapter 5 was focused on the need to confine sexual expression to marriage and yet here we are again and it's once more talking about the son's relationship with women why is that why so much Well, remember that this father and these parents are seeking to prepare their son for a lifetime of wisdom and these lectures in chapters one through nine are foundational. That is, they deal with issues that are common pitfalls on life's road, things like your companions, your approach to money, and your relationship with members of the opposite sex. What all of these have in common is that Because they are foundational, they can set a trajectory for your life. If you get them right, they will bless you. If you get them wrong, they will curse you. These are matters whose effects linger because they can consign to a way of thinking for many years. And they can ensnare in consequences that last far longer than the original act. And so they're emphasized for very good reason. And so I'm talking about these issues then, again, because God does. I'm emphasizing them because Scripture does. And the Bible is saying that sex, like things like friends and money, can set you in a direction that will take you further and further in a wrong direction if you move along that path. Is an illustration of how that goes. I'm not an archer, and I've only used a bow and arrow a few times, most of them on a handful of occasions in high school. In fact, I just this week was sent a picture of me in high school doing some archery. And the few times I did that, I recall that one of the things I was really good at was missing the bullseye, <laughs> and sometimes by a very lot. But the closer the target, the closer I'd get. The further the target, the wider I'd miss. But here's the thing. If your aim is off by just a little, but the target's close, you miss by just a little. But if you aim the exact same way, off by just a little bit, and the target's further out, you miss by more. Possibly missing not only the bullseye, but the entire target. And the idea there is that some sins have a short lifespan. You commit them, but they don't necessarily have an afterlife. If you commit a sin of opportunity, it may not become a way of life, or it may not have long-term effects. Let's say a, a person in front of you in a cashier lane drops $20 and you pick it up and you don't tell them about it. Later you realize it's wrong, you confess to the Lord, but you can't return the money, But you also never do it again but some sins by their nature can and often do have a longer lifespan and getting them wrong early means having to deal with them at length later if you get off target now it will cost you later it will become habit forming and it'll entangle you in relational conflicts And the sins that proverbs emphasizes are like that and sex is one of them get it wrong early and you'll have to contend with it later so verse 20 says my son keep your father's command do not forsake your mother's teaching verse 21 bind them always on your heart fasten them around your neck when you walk they will guide you when you sleep they will watch over you when you awake They will speak to you. Now that passage may remind some of you of another, excuse me, in the law of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says famously this, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And then verse 23 goes on to say, for this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life. That verse as well may remind you of another in Scripture, because Psalm 119 famously says this, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. So the parent's teaching is compared to God's law, to God's word, because that's what it's based on. So it must be followed, son, child, for your own good, or really anyone at any age. Some of you know from church history the name Augustine. He was one of the most important theologians of the early centuries of the church. But he was also a man who, before he became a Christian, led a very sordid and sexually promiscuous life. He wrote about his life before Christ at length in his work appropriately called Confessions. It's said that on one occasion, after his conversion, he was walking down the street and he ran into a prostitute that he used to frequent, and she called out to him, Augustine, it is I. To which he replied without stopping, yes, but it is not I two things about that, he didn't stop to chat, and secondly, he said, it is not I, because he had become a new person. But the emphasis was on his responsibility, not the one tempting him. And likewise, he he had to keep moving. He had to say, no, I'm not going to stop for this, I'm not gonna allow myself to be tempted by this. And likewise, in this lesson, the son is told in verse 25, "Do not let, let, do not lust uh, in your heart, do not lust in your heart, excuse me, after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes." The emphasis is not on what the woman does to you, but what you, son, allow her to do. That is, you don't blame the tempter for your sin, because you're responsible now that may sound familiar because this past week on tuesday we had the tragic shooting in georgia the 21 year old shooter was a member in good standing of a baptist church his family was faithful there he grew up there he served in the youth group but all the while he had an illicit sex habit that he called an addiction Apparently, he indulged pornography, and he frequented massage parlors that were fronts for sex, and it's those places, three of them, where the killings occurred. He told police that he shot the women because, quote, they were a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. Now, men, brothers especially, We need to emphasize that the problem is not outside of us and therefore focused on how women dress and behave. The women who do that in provocative ways designed to entice have indeed their own responsibility. But our responsibility is in, as the word suggests, our response and even in our preparation to be able to respond well. If we indulge, it's on us and on us alone. And I remind you, ladies, that when in these passages there's so much talk about the seductive woman, it's not because it's the woman's fault if a man sins by engaging in sex or doing violence. Rather, as I said two weeks ago, the father is talking to a son in these lectures and therefore warning him about a woman or women who could entice him. So wisdom protects from sexual immorality and in turn then it protects against I say in the outline the consequences of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality has many consequences we're going to see because it can become what is sometimes called a life-dominating sin. It's called that a life-dominating sin because unlike the One-and-done sin, like I described earlier, where one might pocket the 20, but it never happens again. Sins in this category continue. And they touch not just one area of life, but many. The sin is like the hub of a wheel that has spokes that go out. That touch on one's personal life, on relationships at home and elsewhere, on work, on finances. The Bible talks about these kinds of things that capture our hearts, that become habit-forming, and then they affect all areas of life. In Psalm 115, the Bible says, "'Their idols are silver and gold, "'the work of man's hands. "'They have mouths but cannot speak. "'They have eyes but cannot see. "'They have ears but they cannot hear. "'They have noses but cannot smell. "'It goes on, they have hands but cannot feel, "'feet but cannot walk they cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. A part of the message of this psalm is that when a person places their faith in an idol of the heart to change them, make them over, or to lead them, that person becomes dumb, thoughtless, senseless, and hard as stone. A life-dominating sin affects everything. And so biblical counselor Ed Welsh makes the following statement in his book, Addictions, Banquet in the Grave. We have that in our resource center. But he says this, The basic theology for addictions is that the root problem goes deeper than our genetic makeup. Addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. Addictions are ultimately a disorder of worship. It's another way of saying that habitual sin has idolatry at its root because something or someone has become more important than God. The consequences of sexual immorality are that they are, first of all, severe. Openness to sexual immorality will make you susceptible to even more dangerous forms. You may try to make your sexual sin impersonal and transactional by engaging in pornography or sexting with someone you've never met or interacting with them online, and you may figure that it's going to stay that way. But humans were made by God for relationship. And so you're open to the advances of a real person, in person, who may in fact be married, and that involves even more problems. And so verse 26 says, For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Adultery, it's saying, is more costly than prostitution. And in many ways, worse, because it involves breaking the marriage vow, wronging a spouse, destroying a home, and as we'll see later, the debt is out of control. Now, I should point out that saying that, the consequences of adultery are in some ways worse than prostitution does not, of course, endorse sex for hire. In a bit, adultery is compared to theft, as we're going to see, and its consequences are said to be worse than stealing. Adultery is worse than stealing, but that doesn't mean stealing is okay. The Bible, in fact, soberly warns that those who engage in prostitution will participate in God's wrath, not His life. The consequences of sexual immorality are severe the Bible is telling us and that they are inevitable verse 27 can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned the expected answer is of course no and then verse 28 can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched and again the expected answer is no Verse 29, so is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. The other man, another man's wife, the other man, the jealous husband is mentioned here because he's the one who makes the punishment inevitable. He's going to exact a payment. Remember what we saw two weeks ago from chapter 5, that in that culture the jealous husband could find compensation by making the offender his slave for life. We don't have that, but I pointed out that there are many other ways in which these kinds of dalliances, these kinds of entanglements can cause enslavement, financial enslavement in particular. And so the consequences of sexual immorality are severe, they're inevitable and unending. The duration of punishment is seen now in verses 30 to 33, and it contrasts the temporary social stigma of a thief who transgresses to satisfy nutritional hunger with that of an adulterer who transgresses to satisfy sexual hunger. Verse 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. That is, people may sympathize with, though not approve of, a thief if he's attempting to avoid starvation. Still, he's going to have to repay what he stole and pay for his crime, even if it costs him everything. But that thief's punishment, though it's difficult, is less severe than the adulterer's because the one has stolen food and at least done so with understandable reason. But the adulterer has stolen, as it were, another person. Specifically, another person's spouse. Yet he carries on, knowing the high cost, and brings trouble to himself. It makes no sense, and that's why verse 33 says he has none what he gets for his heist is verse 33 blows and disgrace are his lot and his shame will never be wiped away the wrong spouse can never let it go at least in many many cases I've counseled many betrayed spouses And even those who are forgiving of their spouse and the person, they're forgiving of their spouse, and even that, forgiving their spouse, is extremely difficult, even those who are able to do that have a very hard time forgiving the other party. Those who are victimized and not Christian can't even get that far, and may well desire and even do physical violence to the offender the bible is saying the consequences of sexual immorality are several severe inevitable unending because the offender will not cannot forgive the one who intruded on his family and i say in the outline they are destructive verse 34 because for Jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. Not only is the wrong spouse going to potentially do bodily harm, he'll go to court and exact punishment there, too. Now, I say that because in that phrase, when he takes revenge, it refers to the legitimate righteous execution of punishment by a competent authority, like a court. So this wronged husband, hot with jealousy and merciless in his disposition, turns the punishment over to the community's legitimate authority to protect his home. And punishment for adultery in Old Testament times was regarded as a very serious offense, even liable to be punished by death. Verse 35 then says, This jealous husband will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it is. When it says compensation there in verse 35, it refers to a ransom for one's life. We see an example of this in the Old Testament law. Here's what Exodus 21 says. If a bull has had the habit of goring... And the owner has been warned, but has not kept it penned up. And it kills a man or woman. The bull is to be stoned, and its owner also is to be put to death. <laughs> Let me stop there and say, keep your dog on a leash, okay? <laughs> but then it goes on to say this, However, the owner may redeem his life by the payment of whatever Is demanded but this spouse in Proverbs chapter 6 is not going to accept anything less than the offenders life severe consequences destructive consequences so wisdom protects though against sexual immorality and its consequences and it protects against I say in the outline the appeal of sexual immorality chapter 7 says this my son begins now a new lecture a new lesson lesson 10 keep my words and store up my commands within you keep my commands and you will live guard my teachings as the apple of your eye the hebrew word translated apple is literally the center of a thing The pupil, the center of the eye, is the most sensitive and carefully guarded of the human body's exposed organs. And it's saying you should guard God's teachings with that same kind of diligence. If God's truth about humanity is central to your thinking, then, son, you will not dehumanize by sexualizing. If God's truth is central in your thinking then you, son, you, anyone, will not dehumanize another by sexualizing them. Instead of looking to him or her in that debasing way, you'll look at and to the wisdom that I'm giving you. Remember, friends, that your most powerful sex organ is your mind and how and whether you control your mind will determine how well you fare in our overly sensualized culture controlling your mind having it controlled by god's truth having that at the center of your life is an aspect of the spirit's fruit for a christian remember the fruit of the spirit in galatians chapter 5 is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that begins with controlling how you think. What you think about. How you think about other people. How you view another made in the image of God. And if you think according to God's dictates, you will not dehumanize by sexualizing. So, verse 3, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. You'll only find the right horizontal relationship with another person, it's saying, when you first prioritize your vertical relationship with God. And so, if you're going to see people the right way, if you're going to look at them with truth of God at the center of your thinking, if you're going to do that, then you're going to have to have God at the forefront of your heart and mind. And then, instead of seeking relationship illicitly, you'll find your companionship in wisdom, it's saying in verse 3. Wisdom will be your relative. Wisdom will be your sister. And in turn, verse 5, they will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. Now the father includes in his lesson to his son a story of what he's seen, what the father has seen over the years. And it's designed for this father now to paint a bleak picture of cavorting with someone who's not your spouse in order for the son to be disinclined to do it. That is, the father now wants to counter the appearance with the reality. You, son, may be drawn to what appears to be something very good, but the reality is what I'm going to show you, and it's quite different. And if you will think of the real situation, as opposed to what's being presented to you, you won't go there. The appeal will diminish. And you'll be kept safe. So the father says in verse 6. At the window of my house I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple. I noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner. Walking along in the direction of her house at twilight. As the day was fading. As the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face she spoke. The simple in this passage is the one that we were introduced to way back in chapter one. Called simple because they had not yet made a commitment to follow the way of wisdom. And so now when he goes into the big city, he's vulnerable to being taken in by the fool's gold that's located there. So because he's not quite bought what his elders are selling, he thinks he can go downtown and hang out and be unharmed. And apparently, unbeknownst to him, he's strolling past the house of a seductress, her house on the corner. He's not intentionally going there because she initiates the contact. She sees him and she comes out to entice him. And she comes out at just the right time, when darkness is falling, so that the unseemly will not be seen. That's what happens, isn't it? That's when it happens, isn't it? And so that great theologian, Bob Seeger sang of the prostitution industry when he said, There go the streetlights, bring it on the night. Here come the men, faces hidden from the light. All through the shadows. Oh, they come and they go. It happens out in Vegas. It happens in Moline. On the blue-blood streets of Boston, up in Berkeley, and out in Queens. It went on yesterday. It's going on tonight. He goes on to say, when the streetlights flicker, bringing on the night, will they'll be slipping into darkness, slipping out of sight, all through the shadows. Watch them come, and watch them go. She knows the timing. and She comes out, and is looking out. Just then. This woman is not necessarily a prostitute by trade, but is dressed like one and acting like one. Well, we'll see in a bit that she's married, and she's on the hunt with her husband out of town. But she comes upon the young man suddenly and boldly and crassly kisses him. And he's not prepared, which is precisely why he's called simple and so is vulnerable. You see, friend, if you've not made a prior commitment, then when, not if, the pop-up comes up on your screen, you'll click on it. We have clickbait of all kinds, and here is a woman who's live bait. But she's popped up on her unprepared prey. He's not planned for this which is exactly what she was planning on. There's an old saying that to fail to plan is to plan to fail. And that's true in the moral realm. you got to plan what you're going to do when, not if, you're presented. However that presentation comes. You have to make a prior commitment to what you're going to do when the temptation appears. And the Bible gives some deep advice about what to do when the temptation appears. Deep advice. Here it is. 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee. Get out of there. Turn the other way. Turn off that page. Do not click on the clickbait. That verse goes on to say, flee... The evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pastor Larry read earlier from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which commands us to avoid sexual immorality. But she comes out, he's unprepared, he's simple, hasn't made a commitment to the way of wisdom, and so is vulnerable. And she says to him in verse 14, Today I fulfilled my vows and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. Oh man, she believes in God, how wonderful. She's made vows, made an offering. If she's telling the truth that she made a vow with a sacrifice that very day, as part of some cults at that time, the food from the sacrifice was to be eaten that very day, and sex afterward was part of the after-sacrifice. So she's not just a floozy, she's religious. She believes in God, at least in some God. Young people, especially young people, as you're looking and I pray that you are looking for the right kind of person to partner with in order to help each other grow into Christ-likeness for the rest of your lives. As you're doing that, you're looking for someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I say that carefully. You're looking for someone who is a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying you're looking for someone who's a believer. Now, the Bible uses the term believer as a synonym for Christian. So I should be able to say, you're looking for someone who's a believer. But I don't say that anymore. Here's why. Because I can't tell you how many times I've had a young person dating somebody who is not following Jesus, but they say to me, oh, but he or she believes. Believes what? Believes in who? Did you know that the book of James says the devils believe and tremble? There are certain things the devils themselves believe. The question is, does he or she follow Jesus? If not, they're not for you. If you have to guess, they're not for you. If you have to drag them along, they're not for you. She flatters him and she wins him over them. Verse 15, so I came out to meet you. I looked for you. I mean, you were the one I've been looking for. And I found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money, and he'll not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk, and all at once, he followed her. But this is what is Supposed to eliminate the appeal. You see, because that's the presentation that she gives. But here's the reality, says the father. Verse 22. He followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. We could, we could go on. If I had time, I could just list for you people just within the last year who have fallen into this very trap. I mean, the guy goes on Tuesday and he shoots up massage parlors that he apparently frequented so that he could eliminate the temptation massage parlors. So let me just make a suggestion to you. You know, maybe think twice about the massage parlor thing. And and if... And if you're radio preacher, or if some Christian author that you really like invests in and owns massage parlors, divest yourself of that person. I mean, I'll just use one example here that just happened within the last few months. But Ravi Zacharias owned massage parlors in the Atlanta area, as a matter of fact. And he had no one around him to say, you can't do that. Now he had, of course, all these godly reasons why he needed to go and have these massages and it was a good thing for him to own these things. He's got to have somebody around him with the guts to stand up and say, that is not a good look for a minister of the gospel. If I ever do anything approaching that, Thanks be to God, we have men on our leadership team who would stand up and say, I don't care what your reasons are. You're going to divest yourself. Or I'm resigning. No, forget I'm resigning. You're resigning. (laughs) That's what they would tell me. And they would be right. Now, almost done. You know, in our circles, we have had Over the years, our circles, people who take the Bible seriously, people who take holiness seriously in all of its aspects, including sexual purity. We've taken that seriously. That's good. Sometimes we haven't done it in the right way over the years. One of the ways that we've missed is that we've just not talked about what the Bible says. I said that a few weeks ago. That's been a mistake. We've allowed others to fill the void for us, but here's another I'm convinced now a mistake that we have made. Have you all heard about something called purity culture? It's something within evangelicalism and fundamentalism that has gone on for, for decades. And it's been taught, and the idea is you take these purity pledges and these chastity pledges and so on. Now, in themselves, they're they're good. There was a there was a time where guys like Joshua Harris were writing books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Some of you might be familiar with that. And that had taken the evangelical world by, by storm, and people were doing all that. And guys like Bill Gothard, if you know that name, he would hold these uh, seminars for youth, and he would talk about these kinds of pledges. But here's one of the mistakes. I mean, you know, making a pledge and a commitment to the Lord along those lines in itself is certainly not a mistake. That's taking this holiness seriously, and that's a good thing. One of the things that would happen was this, that people were told, if you fail in this, in this most important area, it's going to ruin the rest of your life. You can never recover from this. In fact, it was not uncommon for an illustration to be used in youth groups around the country with two pennies, one very clean, shiny, and new, and another one dirty. And the dirty one had been passed around and was soon going to be taken out of circulation and discarded. That's your life, they were told. Hear this, that's, and that's, that's a mistake. The Bible warns, and I have warned, about life-dominating sins and the effects that those can have for a long time, so therefore don't get involved in them. That's all true. But hear this, friends, though there are life-dominating sins, no sin is life-defining for the Christian. There are sins that are life-dominating, but there is no sin that is life-defining for the Christian, thanks be to God. Because when you come to Christ, you have power, you have divine power, In your struggle with sin and that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness here's why because the next verse says for sin shall no longer be your master There is no sin that is life-defining for the Christian because sin shall no longer be your master. Remember, friends, the Lord forgives and the Lord empowers. So here's your take-home truth. The wise are protected from the danger of sexual immorality. If you want to be one of the wise, you've got to come to Jesus. And so at the end of our time, just before we pray, we give you an opportunity for a come-to-Jesus moment. To give your life to Him, to receive the forgiveness that He provides for all of your sin, past, present, and future, whatever sort that is, sexual sin included. And He forgives that, and He says, Come, and I will wash your sins white as snow. And so you come and you receive that because you acknowledge that you need that and only He can provide that. And you give Him your life. You repent. You're going to go His way. You're no longer going to go your way. And He gives you the power. You can't do it on your own. He gives you His Holy Spirit, the power to overcome sin. So as we bow and pray, you pray to Him to receive Him and the power that only He can provide. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, you are so gracious to us that you not only know what we need, you provide what we need. You know what we struggle with, and therefore you know how to instruct us on those struggles. So thank you for, in your word, emphasizing those things that entangle us over and over again. We've seen it throughout history. We've seen it just in recent history in our own lives. We've seen it with people in your word you know this and you give us fair warning far in advance so we need not move in that direction help us to be wise enough to heed thank you lord that your grace not only extends to instructing and warning before the fact but you also are merciful and gracious to forgive us after the fact we thank you for the lord jesus christ who is the sacrifice that covers all of our sins No matter what they are, when they have happened, how often they have happened, past, present, and future, help us, Lord, to receive that covering that only He can provide. And thank you for the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, that empowers us then to live a new life so that sin will no longer be our master. May it be true of everyone here, everyone watching on live stream, so that we live lives that we were made to live by our Creator and by our Savior who's recreating us and bring glory to you, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand now for our closing song.